You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 142. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Please go to the website where you find show notes, examples, discussion, and more at codingblocks.net. And uh, feedback, question, or answer can go to our uh, email address, comments at codingblocks.net. Email. You can follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. And with that, I am Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. This episode is sponsored by Datadog, the cloud-scale monitoring and analytics platform for end-to-end visibility into modern applications. All right. Hey, today we are finishing up uh, the second way uh, in the DevOps handbook uh, with talking about A-B testing. So uh, let's get to some news. Are you sure we're going to finish it up? Multi-arm octopus testing. Oh, okay. (laughs) All right. So, yes, uh, in our news, as we like to do, we like to thank those that have taken the time to go and leave us some words on, you know, the various different places where you can do reviews. So I have iTunes and that is Jinx Protocol. So thank you there. All right. Now I'm going to read off some of these. Tell me if you can guess which one of these is Mr. Smarty Pants. Okay. You ready? Or Mrs. Smarty Pants. How about that? <laughs> I'll keep it easy for you, Mike. <laughs> and King J. Arthur. Now, one of those is not like the other. <laughs> That's amazing. That was good. And uh, we, we don't have any other news to uh, to talk about because uh, we have just been looking at NVIDIA stuff all week. So, Oh, my gosh. You had to start with that, right? <laughs> yeah. Alan, have you got uh, your 3080 on order? No, but I want one. I, know, I was right? going to get an Xbox. I was like, okay, I'm I'm an Xbox and Switch kind of person now. Um, but now I don't know, dude. I so I, I think I've got pre-orders, or I will be doing pre-orders for the Xbox X, the PlayStation Five, <laughs> and and I don't know what else will be coming this way. But I need all the things so that I can look at them. I'll never actually get to play them, but I want to look at them. <laughs> I was say like, are you going to order a new Nintendo while you're at it? Because you know, why not? Yeah, I mean, although I did get Tony Hawk for yes. uh, two plus one because Joe mentioned it, man, I did yeah. play that a little bit over the weekend. Awesome, was, right? That was fun. That that I brought mean, back some memories. Heck so, yeah! So, all right, um, I guess we'll go ahead and jump into this, which will be the last portion of the second way. This is like two point five or two point six. Like, where are we in the second way? We're a few in. Well, for those who that that are like, uh, you know, who uh, who have the book and might realize, wait a minute, that's not technically the end of the second way. It's going to be the end of our second way. How's that? <laughs> because like the real end of the second way is more akin to like the episodes that we've already had that followed like the Google engineering practices and uh, you know, pull rev- requests and code reviews and things like that. Like that, that's what the the real end of the second way is. That's about. in here. That's it. Oh, you did put that in there? Yeah, yeah. That, that, I hadn't finished up the show notes before we started recording tonight. So, yeah, oh, it's in well, there Oh, well, then, I mean, I don't want to, like, take it away because we're definitely going to be talking about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we never are wrapping before. up the second way. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, <laughs> buckle in. It's going to be a long one. Hey, and and also, it's probably worth noting, um, the what are the ways in DevOps Handbook? It's the first way was? Uh, uh, t- feedback. Yes. Is this a test? Technical Uh, practices of flow. 
the technical okay. practices of flow, the technical practices of feedback, and the technical practices of continual learning and experimentation. Right. So we are wrapping up the feedback. Okay. In this. So first one is really uh, continuous integration. Uh, and then the way we're talking about now basically deals with the kind of the feedback. And then the third one just gets weird. I like it. <laughs> Spoiler. Yeah. Spoilers. So, so look for the upcoming weirdness. Weird. It's kind of weird. I mean, it's not, it's not weird. It's, uh, I don't know. I didn't love the third way. Third way is not my favorite. Oh, so speaking of which, because we always forget this until the very end. So only the people that hang out with us for the next three, four five hours ever get there. Um, if you want a chance to win your own copy of the DevOps handbook, be it Kindle hardback, or if you prefer audiobook. Leave a comment on this show, codingblocks.net slash episode 142, and you'll have a chance to enter and win that. All right. So that out of the way, let's actually dive in here. Um, so the first section that we're talking about tonight is integrate hypothesis-driven development and A-B testing. All right. And so uh, the quote we got here is the most inefficient way to test a business model or product is to build the complete product to see whether the predicted demand actually exists. That sounds like a lot of stuff we've talked with, like uh, building MVP. And uh, if you ever heard of the notion of trying to sell something before you actually build it, that uh, ties in nicely. Well, it's pretty much like the old way of of doing things, right? Like you would actually build a thing. It, it's kind of like the the field of dreams, except – it's shit, like yeah, like like <laughs> that 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 movie really had it wrong. I guess is what we're learning. Build the, it and they will come. <laughs> yeah, build it and they will come. That was the whole thing about the field of dreams, right? But uh, really, what we're learning is that's not the way to do it. Right. Maybe build a portion of it, build what like home they, plate, and then see if everything everybody comes. And that's kind of like what they get into when they're talking about this. Is they say you need to constantly be asking, should we build it? And why should we build it? Right. And that's part of the, that doesn't sort of go hand in hand with designing it all up front and then building it for six months. It's more about, Hey, is this, is this what we should be doing? And one of the things that they got into is Intuit, the tax software company, they really support employees doing this whole high velocity experimentation. The case studies again, I Joe, I don't understand how you don't like the case studies because the cool thing about Intuit, especially that they were talking about, uh, you can slap me later if you if you already were going to plan on talking about this later. But the cool thing about Intuit was that uh, you know they would actually do their experiments during their peak season, right? Like yep. they wouldn't wait and like oh let's see if this works. Like during peak tax season, it's like hey let's try all this. And, and the authors like make a point of like, by, by doing your experimentations during the peak season, that's when you can really learn like if something works or if your customers like it, rather than if you did it during an off peak season, you might find like, okay, yeah, like this totally works. Uh, but maybe, you know, the portion of the population of your, of your customer population that you tested it on is a small fraction of, you know, that, that doesn't really represent your real business during your, your peak season. Hey, and the important part to point out here is why that's such a big deal is, and all three of us have worked at big companies, a lot of times when you get into peak season, like UPS, for instance, right? Their peak season is around Christmas. That that whole month of December, they lock everything down. They're like, yo, you're not changing anything. 
because we need to make sure that we can deliver these packages and we don't have any hiccups, right? And so it's very counter to what they said they did with Intuit because their whole thing was, you know, this is the best time to find out what our customers are actually going to like or dislike about what we do, right? Like, it's so we can get those incredibly fast feedback loops. And the important part here is that ties back into DevOps is the only reasons that's possible is because they, they have enabled themselves to release quickly and, and continue to release as fast as possible, right? Like their, their deployment pipeline is solid and that's why they can do this. But going back to your question about like, should uh, constantly ask, like, should we build it though? Right. Like um, by doing some of that experimentation during that, that peak season though, you can also get that kind of answer. Like, Hey, is this even worth doing? Right. Right. Yeah. It's ridiculous. I'm sorry. Why would you do that? (laughs) Why? I haven't now to be fair, I have not read that case study because I think I already know everything. Uh it's kinda like it's like a math like <laughs> math algebra. It's like you you read the proof, then they expect you to do problems. It's just an insult. Like I already read the proof, I got it. Let's move on. <laughs> so you don't so, need to do math. So says problems. Mathematician. So case studies are wasted on Joe. Like, hey, you told yeah. me this is how it works. I just believe you. I, That's I mean, why I'm so good at math. <laughs> Alan and I loved the case studies in this book, and this was just one more of them that was awesome. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that they also said about Intuit, and, and I did don't typically put a lot of the case studies in the notes because I think that's the goodness that you'll get when you read the book. That I mean, we, we only hit on parts of them, but one of the cool parts they said is by doing this, they were able to out-experiment their competition. Mm. Basically meaning... While their competition's locked down during peak season, they're like, hey, let's put this change in and see if people are digging this, right? Like if this is working for them, if they do, then then they can iterate on that particular feature. Like whichever one of the 10 they tried, the the two of them that clicked, they could be like, let's focus on those, right? And that's that's amazing. And this only works because they have fast feedback and the ability to quickly adapt. So if it's not working, they can stop quickly. And if it is working, they can invest further in it right now rather than waiting a whole another year to realize the benefits. I feel yep. like there's a spoil- a related spoiler uh, to the Phoenix project that I guess like we're not allowed to talk about in this episode because it would be a spoiler. No, we got to do a spoiler cast. A spoiler cast. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Or we ruin a book for everybody. Yeah, maybe we could do a Zoom or we could, we should do something. We should stream it or something and uh, invite people and just just get it all out there. Did you end up uh, listening to me, Alan? I did. I've listened to the entire Phoenix Project. I really enjoyed it. All right, awesome. Well, yeah. What about the Unicorn? Project? I have not done the Unicorn okay. Project yet. Yeah, um, I can only listen to so much fake, sort of real tech yeah. audio books at once. So you know, I, I got to take a break and then I'll refresh and come back to it. Okay, right. which one? Okay, so between DevOps and Phoenix, which one you like best? I think DevOps. Okay. Um, I, 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 that's not to take anything away from the Phoenix no, project. I get it. It's a tough call. It, I think the reason why I like DevOps is because I, just what you said a second ago, I really like the the real world use uh, um, case. Uh, what are the case studies? Case studies, yes. The case studies, because I really like hearing that, hey, um, Yahoo did this and they were able to increase their, their deploys by a thousand times, right? Or, or Intuit did this and so they were able to beat out their competition. Like, it's one thing to read a novel where somebody could take liberties with how they want to do something. And it's another when you hear 
yo, this company actually did it. And it went against what everybody out there thought was the right thing to do. And guess what? They're kicking everybody's tail now because they saw that opportunity. And that, that to me, that I think that's why the DevOps handbook sort of wins out. Hmm. Okay. All right. So then let's get into the integrating AB testing, which is pretty much what this, uh, this section is really about. Uh, so this is also known as split testing, uh, or, or at least that's what they refer to it. I don't know that I've ever heard it as for, referred to as split testing. Have you guys? I have. Really? Yeah. I thought AB, like AB testing and UIs, I thought it had kind of gone out of favor because of split testing where people kind of have different ways of doing things. That isn't necessarily like AB kind of implies almost like 50-50 mm-hmm. and uh, only testing one thing at a time. And split testing gets a little bit weirder. Yeah. Yeah, because it's technically like you could just shave off like, hey, I want 10% of my traffic to, to go to this other right. thing. Let's yeah. see see how they respond to it. Do they even uh, use the new widget or if they do, does it work? And that's that's one thing that we get into here in a second that is almost appalling. Um, so so for anybody that's not aware of what A-B or split testing is, it's it's pretty simple, right? Like if, if we're talking about a web page and – and I think even uh, there was some company that was doing this for Mac users versus Windows users at some point. I can't remember exactly what it was. I want to say it was like a travel site and the Mac users, they would show more expensive things because uh, <laughs> and then the Windows users would get a lower end type package that would be presented. And the thinking was people who buy Macs are willing to pay a premium for for that thing and so that's how they did it so at any rate a b testing is really taking a portion of whoever's coming to to your software and some of them are going to see one version of something and it may not be a whole page it might just be a feature on the page and then the others will see the older regular version right so it's a way of testing these features out and these aren't these aren't ads don't confuse these with like ads that might be specific right. to one one user versus the next, but these are like features of the of the site. Uh, yeah. For example, if we're talking about web pages, uh, you know, features of the site that might you might only show like ten percent of your users. Um, you know that version. An example might be: let's say that you changed the navigation and you wanted to see, hey, are people able to find my products better? now with my new navigation, right? You might show your new navigation to 25% of the population because you don't want a hundred percent of your population being frustrated if it doesn't work. Right. Yeah. And, and then, and then you trace, you know, what was the, the average order value or whatever after that. Right. So, so you start putting in metrics to where you can see that stuff. You've likely seen this and maybe not even realize, especially if you shop Amazon, because I, I've seen it all the time with Amazon where like the layout of like the page, the, the product details page will change. And then if I open up a second window to, you know, comparison shop, you know, uh, you know or not, not comparison shop against a different company, but just like look at a different product, both on Amazon, I might see like different uh, product detail representations. Have you, have you guys ever had that happen? Yeah. Yep. It's annoying too. <laughs> it kind yeah, of so many different prices and stuff. It's weird. That's that's the part that's annoying. So if you're ever if you want to see this happen on Amazon and it, you really want to go a little bit crazy, is if you see a product that you're sort of interested in, sometimes you'll see it pop up and say, "Hey, there's a five or ten percent coupon if you order it right now." Open it up in a totally different browser, and you may not get that coupon offer. Like 
that kind of stuff drives me crazy because I know that that coupon's there. Why can't I find it again? You know, yeah. it, it's, you know, whatever. Yeah, real quick, uh, on, while we're still talking about testing, uh, I guess we're going to be testing, while, <laughs> talking about testing for a while, but uh, I looked up um, what I was thinking about for um, split testing, uh, A-B testing, and uh, what I was thinking of, which was multivariate testing. And um, kind of what I was getting at is um, when you talk about traditional A-B testing, you're generally only testing one thing. So you might change the background color or the link color or drop shadows or move uh, a picture by 20. But the idea is to test something very small. And the op- or the uh, alternative here is multivariate testing where you test multiple variables. And the downside is how do I know which variable worked? But the upside is, is you get to test combinations of things because it kind of, if you think about doing one thing at a time, it's like, well, we made the, the heading bigger and it worked. And now we made the picture bitter and it worked. Now we put them together and it doesn't work. Right. So it's, uh, it makes it more complicated to do the math and kind of split things up in, in smart ways. But, uh, ultimately you get to test more things and more things in combination faster. And so that, that's why I'm kind of, I, I think of a, a B testing as kind of, becoming less popular, but that's only in the very specific, like kind of website e-commerce oriented or uh, marketing way of thinking. Yeah. So this now is where, is where we get into the part that is a little bit depressing. So there was a study from Microsoft where they found that only about a third of features improved the key metric they were actually trying to move. So if you think about that, if you made three major changes only one of those three would actually do what you wanted it to do. And and that's why going back to the Intuit thing, why that's so important is the fact that they can quickly experiment and iterate on that. They can quickly throw away those two-thirds of things that they, that they know aren't going to work, right? Like, hey, we did it. Get it out of the code base, right? Because they probably didn't spend a ton of time building this massive feature that it's going to get launched and then people are going to be like, yeah, I don't really care, Right it's a whole lot easier to throw away that cruft when it's a very small chunk of stuff that you put out there instead of some massive feature set. Well, this is why like features like, a, um, like, okay. So we've been, we've been talking about recently telemetry and metrics and everything. Just a moment. And if we go back to, okay, yeah, I can wait a moment. Um, <laughs> <if we go, laughs> that was awkward. Uh, right. if we go back to, uh, I think we had mentioned in the past, I had mentioned like uh, the IBM core metrics, right? When you can tie some of these changes in with metrics where you can actually see like dollar impacts, right? Like, you know, it, it's easy for all of us to be able to equate to, you know, you know, Hey, did this actually make me more money versus not? Cause other things can kind of be a little bit more subjective. Like, you know, did they stay on my page longer? Like, okay, maybe, I don't know. I mean, it depends if that's what you want. Um, but you know, it, it's really easy when it's just money. And so like, uh, like the IBM core metrics, you could actually see and put like attributes on specific buttons. Like, Hey, did they click this? Did it actually convert into a cell? And how many more cells did I get? Because that thing was there or even present on the page. Right. Totally. And the important takeaway with this entire thing, even what he just said is if you make a change, you add a feature, you do something different and you're not measuring the impact of it, you have no idea whether or not you actually increase the value of what you're delivering, right? And and there's a danger to that other than just maybe you didn't make any more money. You spent a lot of time building this thing and you didn't make more money. The worst thing is 
as you add more things to your code base, you're making this thing less maintainable over time, right? It's actually harder to introduce new changes because it's going to get more complex. So you might be increasing the complexity at the same time, also driving down the value of each person that's hitting your site or, or your application or whatever, right? Like it doesn't have to be a website, but, but yeah, metrics are so key into actually understanding if what you're doing is being effective. Yeah, it's it's tough though. Like, there's all um, a lot of like single like if you're focusing on one single metric for uh for something, it can be a real big pain. Like, how many times have you gone to a website and you had some stupid thing pop up to ask you to join the mailing list? Like, as soon as you get or take a survey, as soon as you go to the website and you're like, you haven't gotten anywhere yet, and you've got to do this thing, and it's so annoying. But if someone looked at the survey results for that, they're like, oh my gosh, we popped up this big annoying thing, and our survey res- responses are up seven hundred percent. But uh, revenue's down ten percent right. because some you know some number of people left. And same with the, the Microsoft thing. Like you could say, okay, well, um, let's say we added a feature that was uh, designed to drive engagement. Call it export reports. And so now people are going to our website less because they're getting emailed uh, reports, and so they don't have to go to the website as often. But the idea behind that, or why that could still be good, is because maybe those subscribers or some other way of uh, making money from these people has actually improved, and that can sometimes take a, a lot longer to measure. So sometimes uh, the metrics can be tricky, but I still think, just like you said, you have to know what you're going after. So if you're adding like an export feature or automatic or scheduled something that that prevents people from going back to your website, then it has to provide value in some other way or else what are you doing? Right. Now imagine this though, like start, because <laughs> we're basically getting to the point where we're we're combining a bunch of things that we've been talking about over the past few episodes, right? So this is all fine and dandy for a web page, right? Like it's easy to wrap your head around that because it's like every time a new uh, browser hits that website, like you're delivering a, a new copy of the thing. And so each one you could tailor. Um, but hey, what if the thing that you want to A-B test is an application in the iOS app store, right? The Apple app store. Like Apple isn't going to let you have two versions out there. And now that's where you would feature flag things to say like, okay, for this feature, you know, maybe I like ping back to a server and 10% of my user base can see this new feature or the other, you know, everybody else is disabled. They don't even see the button. Right. So like you could kind of see like the, the putting it all together, like the, the value that it could provide. But again, you know, you know, that's, that's combining our conversation about feature flags, combining the conversation about uh, metrics and telemetry, as well as now we're talking about A-B testing. Yeah, yeah. and go ahead. Uh, you can go ahead. Mine's kind of a diverge. Uh, we'll go ahead and diverge. The best okay, well, I was going to say uh, the, the third way that I mentioned being kind of weird, it's also the same kind of idea here where it's like if you get your stuff automated and you can actually measure what you're doing, then you're op- you open yourself up to a lot of different kinds of experiments and um, different things that you can do to try and stay ahead. So it's kind of like that, uh, that old notion of like a uh, kind of crawl, walk, run where you've got the basics down. Now you can go exploring. Although some would say you should run, walk, crawl, right? Basically yeah. get it out there as fast as possible. And, and then iterate on it a little bit slower, right? Let's, let's, let's polish the thing. And then, and then slow it down when, when you've got it where it needs to be, then stop messing with that thing. And then, and then do the run, walk, crawl, 
Run, walk, walk yeah. crawl. Uh, we got <laughs> on walk. another feature. Yeah, right. say it. Hey, say it three times fast. I, I dare you. <laughs> you, you run to build the features till you sell your company, and then you walk to the bank and cash a check, and then you're out of there while the company slowly crawls to their death. I was going to say man. you crawl out of the bar after you celebrate. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Where are your priorities, actually, sir? So you kind of creeped into the next section, though. There, outlaw with the. With the feature flag. So the next part that they wanted to talk about was um, you need to integrate your A-B testing into your releases. And that basically means effectively putting feature flags into your product, right? And then and then by having a release pipeline that has this sort of in it, you'll be able to do those things quicker, right? And be able to turn those things on and off as time goes on. And they they even talked about it again. It surprised me. I, I I have I think I've been more shocked in this book by the number of features that Etsy has given out to the world than just about anything else. Because one of the things that they talked about here was they open sourced their feature API. Like, dude, they've been mentioned so many times in this book for for things that they've given to the community. I mean, it is like a. a- a website for makers to give out their wares. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Um, like a couple of the features that they pointed out that is in this feature API is they have this thing called online ramp ups, which is, you know, as, as the things come in, you get more and more people trying out this new feature. That's kind of cool. And then you could even throttle the exposure to features. So if you wanted to slow that down and choke it off a little bit more, you can do that. So these are built into the framework. And I think we've even talked about this in the past when we talked about A-B testing. There's frameworks for .NET. I, I, I say framework. There's like NuGet packages for .NET to be able to toggle things on and off. I'm sure there are for Java and everything else, right? Well, we've also talked about services like uh, LaunchDarkly. Right. Um, so that you could, you know, just just spin out, uh, you know, feature flag your, your portions and, and control like Hey, what kind of browser, what kind of percentage, uh, you know, you get into like demographics and locations and things. Yeah. I, I want, I want launch darkly. I just don't have anything to use them with. <laughs> so, so if you ever go to codingblocks.net and it's not the most uh, thrilling website, you're in the 10%. That's right. <laughs> we really ought to do something with the website. We ought to, we ought to do some stuff. I mean, not not me. Not me <laughs> let's let's like let's redo it. And make it look like it was uh, from nineteen ninety five or something. You know, put like the little Duke animated logo on it. You know, <laughs> under construction with the guy digging. Yeah, yeah, in a marquee good. tag, linking. Yeah. Tell you what, if you can help us with the website, send an email to our email address saying that you'd love to help us with our website. Oh my god. So oh, yeah. I'm I'm so kidding. I'm so yeah, kidding. He's yeah. absolutely kidding. I'm so kidding. That, that means we're going to have to do work anyway. So they, well, <laughs> that plus we get that exact email. So, I don't know, ten times a day. It's right. It's mind boggling how many people email a day to say they'll redo your website or get you new content or get you number one in, in Google or whatever. Oh my gosh. Are you interested <laughs> in Adobe users? Oh my <laughs> right. gosh. Oh, for a Presto users. Like they, they know who they're talking to. Like, would you like Kafka users, Presto users, Elasticsearch users, SQL server? Like every day. Oh, it's insane. It's insane. That's <laughs> yeah. the stuff that makes it through the spam filter. Right. Yeah. We, Somehow. yeah, we need to work on that. I, I still need to put that in. All right. Anyways. So, 
the there are other products out there besides this this feature API. Um, some that you might have heard of, one called Google Analytics that seems to be everywhere on the interwebs. And then Optimizely is another one. I think that Joe, you actually shared a link from that up there above. I didn't realize so, you could do A/B testing with Google Analytics. How did I oh, miss yeah. that in the book? You can do targeted marketing campaigns and all kinds of stuff, and you can you can track it. Oh, okay. Yeah, like we totally have we have everything we need to do to do cool tests and like find out cool things. But but yeah, targeted so, marketing no. though that that's more about telemetry there, right? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. I think you can actually have it do things like show different ads from Google and I, there's, there's all kinds of things you could do with it. I've never dug into it deeply because it just, I just thought that was work. a telemetry thing. Well, we don't have anything to sell. Like, right, a lot of it's it. built around the funnel. Up. Right. So they're like, okay, well define the parts yeah. of your funnel and we'll tell you how far people get. And like, Oh, um, I don't have anything. Right. We need to figure out something to sell is Done. what we're saying. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's why, like, I mean, you're, you're talking about that funnel and, and, that's why the Amazon uh, one click was such a big deal for them, right? Like that—that's what was such a game changer because there wasn't a fun- there was no funnel; it was just a hole. You, like you click it, and that—that's where that's the hole your money went in. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Buy with one yep. click, done. Where'd it it go? was an effective hole. It still yeah. is. Uh, that uh, that still also is. contributed to me doing like three Amazon orders in a day, though. Which you know, <laughs> I guess they've managed to do okay despite that. Yeah, they're I, still batching that stuff because things still come in the same boxes sometimes, even when I do that. So I yeah, can't believe true. they got a patent for that, though. That was the thing that, that I was like, okay, software patents are a joke. They really yep. are. So the the next thing we have is integrating the A-B testing into feature planning. So what they're saying here is you just need to tie your feature changes to business goals, right? That sounds like such a simple thing, but... How many times you guys been in meetings where people are like, yeah, we need to add this. It's like, wait, why? (laughs) Like, is this more important than this other thing? Like, who's going to bat for this? See, that's the thing that stinks about this chapter is like, this means you have to communicate with like other departments and stuff. Because they're (laughs) the ones that usually kind of have those metrics that are closer to the customer on that stuff. So if you're reducing customer service calls or you're increasing sales by whatever – like you kind of need to work with those departments on defining those metrics and then you both need to be able to see those metrics. And uh, sometimes that kind of communication, especially as the organization gets large, is uh, it's tough. Yeah, it, it can be. Man, I, I, I fell down the hole. Uh, the one, the <laughs> Wait, one click. What did you buy? <laughs> the one click hole. Um, no, I, I, I went to my favorite website, Wikipedia again. And cause, cause I was curious about the patent and it turned out like it was challenged, but, uh, they actually, uh, you know, held up, but it has since expired. So now, now we could introduce, that's the only thing we were really waiting for to redo codingblocks.net. Codingblocks, was, yes. Oh, yeah, we, no, we got a funnel. We wanted we to do one click, one click. <laughs> uh, shopping. So yeah. So uh, get on that, Alan. That's all. Yeah. I, yeah. I'll be right there. Oh, <laughs> so. One of the things that they're talking about with tying these to the business goals, it's very much a scientific approach. If you remember the scientific method from back in your grade school days, this is it. Form a hypothesis. What do you expect the results to be? And then at what point do you deem that thing a success, right? Like, So you kind of have to know what you want out of it going into it. Um, and again, we've said this so many times since we've started this particular book is – the ability to deploy quickly is what enables all of this to happen, right? So 
just know that you're going to have to put some time into the DevOps side of things. I would to like make to rephrase that. Reality. Okay. And it's not, it's not necessarily about deploying quickly as much as it's deploying consistently, right? Like having it every time it's a repeatable process. I mean, it's quick because you're not manually doing things, but don't, you know what I'm saying? Like it's not necessarily know, focus on the ability to like, the deployment happens in like 60 seconds as much as it is that the, the deployment happens and every time it's consistently, you know, deploying the bits the right way to the right places, the way I they can need sort to of get behind that. But I would say like, if your deployment takes, let's say that you're building something like windows, like this is an extreme case, right? Like what if it takes two days to build that and deploy it? Then, you can't react to things very fast then, right? So that's a problem. So I think to your point, a minute versus 15 minutes, like probably don't care that much, right? Um, days, like the, then, then you probably start worried about what your deployment pipeline looks like because a, a massive mistake could, depending on your size and, and your audience could be a big problem. Well, yeah, but you could still solve that problem in different ways too. Uh, what was that build process? Uh, 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 started with a B that Google had, like Baffle or something. Uh, where, dang it, it wasn't. I, I mean, I'm just I made up Baffle, but uh, <laughs> Babel was that it? Was Babel? That, oh, I think so. the 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 build process that they had, where like it was a much more intelligent build system that could. Yeah. So when you get to the scale of like you're trying to recompile Windows or or something like some massive Basil. Know, Basil, there you go. Thank you. Uh, you know, if you're trying to recompile, like you know, the Google search engine or uh, Kubernetes, then <laughs> that was a joke. Um, <laughs> then, then you know, there there are other tools that you should be looking at to add to your build chain that can add to that to make that quick. So, I I I, I will concede with the, the the quickness being important as it relates to being able to um experiment right but i don't want to take away of devops to be that like hey this is about deploying quickly either right because it, it, it's more than it's so much more than that it is so much more than that totally too much more <laughs> <laughs> it's really about the yaml Today's episode of Coding Blocks is sponsored by Datadog, the unified monitoring platform for full visibility into all of your serverless functions. Troubleshoot performance issues faster by seamlessly navigating between logs, lambda metrics, and distributed request traces all within one unified platform. Yeah, and Datadog provides real-time screen boards and service mapping so you can get complete observability into your serverless environment. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about metrics lately, and I was just scrolling through the Datadog blog, which is just fun. <laughs> if you like visualizations or data or metrics, anything, you're going to love it. Uh, but anyway, uh, just looking at the, the latest things they've added, including uh, the ability to do complex Boolean filters on metrics uh, and alerting and the things they've added for incident management and, of course, serverless functions. And just looking at the visualizations, they are killer. So definitely want to go and create yourself a dashboard if you haven't already and do it anyway, just because it's awesome. Yeah, they have some amazing visualizations. So start your 14-day trial today. Receive a free Datadog t-shirt after creating just one dashboard. And make sure you visit datadoghq.com slash codingblocks to learn about how Datadog can help you optimize your serverless environment. Remember, that was datadoghq.com slash codingblocks.
All right, so it's that time of the show to where we ask you if you haven't had the chance or you know you've been too busy and you wanted to do something really nice for us, head over to codingblocks.net slash review and click one of those things there. I think we have iTunes and we have Stitchers, two places that you can easily go in and leave a review. It really does mean a lot to us, like when we get these things where people say, Hey, we get it, I get a good laugh and I learn something, or Hey, you helped change my life. It, it really means a lot when we see those things. So if you do get the opportunity, definitely go up there and check it out. And we always appreciate it. And it just about always, almost always puts a smile on our face. We, we sometimes don't get great ones, but you know, it happens. So yeah. All right. Well, with that. Speaking of laughs, it's time for everybody's favorite new portion of the show. It's time for dad jokes. Yeah. <laughs> we really should just make it a regular thing. Uh, all right. So I got this one from uh, Jim on uh, on uh, Slack. And and you probably know him more as the, uh, the design patterns evangelist. Um, but he, he shared with us a tweet that I thought was kind of humorous. And uh, we'll see if you guys are ready for this one. Two windmills are on a date and one asks the other, so what kind of music do you like? And the other replies, I'm a big metal fan. (laughs) Awful. Love it. (laughs) Awful. Love it. (laughs) I couldn't see it coming either. It's just great. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, all right. In all serious, we head into uh, my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. All right. So uh, a few episodes back, we asked just very simply, which one? And your choices were Coca-Cola, because I'd like to teach the world to sing. <laughs> or Pepsi, it's hair on fire good. And I dare you to like read that Coca-Cola one and not have the song sing in your head. It's always Coca-Cola. That one. No. Oh, my God. No. With a smile on your face. Oh, I remember. No. Neither. Oh, we're both wrong. Is that the one about the pickles and stuff? The world to sing in perfect harmony. Oh, no. No. I hated that song. Nah. It's always Coca-Cola. Oh, no, but that's Coca-Cola. what the whole thing was because I'd like to teach the world to sing. I tried. It was literally a lyric from the song. <laughs> it was so bad. It was oh, so bad. So and it had all those all those people. <laughs> I burned old. every album that was, had anything to do with any of those people. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't the Chicago Bears on it? <laughs> oh, wait. I think, <laughs> like I'm sorry. I'm thinking Chicago of We Are Bears? the World. Sorry. Different song. All right. Uh, okay. I think Alan went first last time. I think. I always forget. Uh, so we'll let <laughs> this will be really fun. Uh, Math of a chicken. You have two choices, sir. Pick yep, one yep. with with a percentage. Okay. Well, obviously it's Coke with one hundred percent, but uh, I know there's some shysters out there, so I'm going to go with one hundred and eleven. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll have to take it. Da, da, da. The math of chicken strikes again. Yeah. All right. <laughs> should, uh, Wait, Dr. Be, Pepper is not Coke. Mm. Wait, should you yeah. said da da da, but shouldn't it be bok bok bok? <laughs> yes, it should. Uh, 
All right. So I too also though happen to agree. And maybe it's because I live here in the South as my California motorcycle riding dude does. Um, <laughs> uh, it's got to be Coca-Cola. And I'm going to go with 60%, even though we, we know that we have a very diverse crowd of people from all over the place on that listen to this show. I still think that there's no denying that Coca-Cola tastes better. So mm. it, it's got to be that, man. And, and if we didn't say Coke products, if we didn't say Pepsi products, yep. right? Like yep. if, if, if Dr. Pepper and Diet Dr. Pepper and Mountain Dew and all that stuff made it in there, it'd be a different world. But we're talking about Coke versus Pepsi. So, yeah. so Coca-Cola is the clear winner at 60%. Okay. I, I, I definitely uh, like your reasoning. Um I would like to know how much Coca-Cola paid you for that endorsement. <laughs> uh, I didn't realize we were doing paid endorsements for it. But okay. They need to talk to me here after this one, please. Yeah, for, for real. Uh, so the winner is, it's Alan. Of course it's Alan. Yeah. Uh, yeah, namely because <laughs> you didn't Alan. overshoot the percentage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was 68% Coca-Cola. Nice. Wow, that was very close. Yeah. That's seven to three, man. That's rough. <laughs> Why close. is there so much Pepsi product? He <laughs> said it was very close. Where is Pepsi even from? There's no world of Pepsi, is there? Uh, oh, that's a good point, sir. You know, I don't know. There's got to be, there's got to, wherever their headquarters is, I'm sure that they have like a world of Pepsi. And for those who are like, what are you talking about, World of Pepsi? If you've never been to Atlanta, which is the home of Coca-Cola, there is the World of Coke uh, museum that you could go to. It is a waste of money, but totally go do it if you're here. And and you will drink some of the worst caffeinated, carbonated drinks oh, ever known to man. No, if you go in there. the best one yeah. that you definitely need to take, a, uh, you know, Maybe just buy as much of it as you can. Take it home. You're going to love this one is the Beverly. You want as much of that one as you can possibly get. And all those Italian sodas, as much as I love uh, Italy and all the people there, y'all sodas. (laughs) Wow, this got harsh quick. Right. We just took a turn. (laughs) Not good. Not good. By the way, Pepsi was introduced as Brad's drink in North Carolina. North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Well, they're head, they're headquartered in New York City. Yeah, well, it's actually quite a bit north of New York, but that's what I say. New York City. <laughs> oh, that was from the Coke commercial. Uh, Dude, this was also created in 1898. I didn't realize Pepsi had been around so long. 1893. Really? It says right here, it was first invented by Caleb Bradham in his pharmacy in 1898. Uh, no, on Wikipedia, it says it was introduced as Brad's drink in 1893 by Caleb Bradham. Well, it was uh, renamed to Pepsi in 1898. PepsiStore.com says 1898. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm up on PepsiStore.com. Well, but I'm, I'm still <laughs> nobody goes there Wikipedia. for their information. It's Wikipedia. <laughs> so, uh, PepsiStore.com doesn't work for me because half the page is a big Adobe Flash Player thing that Chrome won't show me. You can't hate on them for for having outdated technology, sir. Oh, I, I can. This I is can. that A-B testing. <laughs> They're trying to see if it would work on you. Well, this is why they uh, you know, didn't get the 68% that Coca-Cola did. You're right. right. They do have Adobe Flash. How do you have Adobe Flash? Well, I only know because it's blocked. 
Yeah, I, right. I just didn't. I just see something the other day that said I think it was Chrome was saying that they were stopping support for it in October this year. Oh, really? I, I think, yeah, I think it's it's officially gone. I mean, this, this is what bothers me. Okay, now, now, like, it's bad enough that they they that they lost out to Coca Cola. You know, uh, math and chicken quick. What would be the math? Thirty three percent. Yes, so close with the percentage. <laughs> I was looking for thirty two, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> so so it's so bad that they lost with thirty two percent, but then they have the wrong information on their webpage to say that it was eighteen ninety eight, and they have Adobe Flash, and it's like, dude, uh, what what year is this? No, in all fairness, that was PepsiStore.com. I don't that's believe true. that's the official Pepsi, no. right? Like, uh, oh, is that the case? You know what? Yeah. You're probably right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we were totally raining on your parade with an out, not a real site. So that's, you oh, know, my, we, man. we were like, cheating. We cheated. I, I <laughs> was like, I, I thought you were being serious there. But yeah, okay. That makes so much more sense. <laughs> no, no. The Pepsi site's actually decent. So, all right. Okay. All oh, right. Sorry. What's our next survey? I, I apologize get? for everything I said, Pepsi. <laughs> um, but Coke Zero is the bomb. Okay. So, <clears throat> uh, where do we leave off? Oh, so then we'll get into uh, this episode survey. And uh, hey, Joe Recursion Joe sent us this one, and I thought this was pretty good because and it's also really timely because iOS 14 just came out, and so. His idea for the survey was, hey, when a new mobile OS update comes out for iOS or Android, do you update as fast as possible? I can't get the bits, the new bits fast enough. Or, no, wait, why? Wait, no, that's not right. Why? Did you guys, like, uh, override my thing here? No. Oh, no. Okay. So, <laughs> sorry, I'll fix that. But uh, so update as fast as possible or wait for us for the release to stabilize or just never update. All right. So I'm going to ask you a question here. This may not lead the audience. Maybe it does. Do you have iOS 14? I was going to ask you that, sir. I do. <laughs> because I was going to be really disappointed if you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> do you? You do, don't you? Of so course. So we know our answers. All right. <laughs> I, I'm definitely in that, like, I can't get it fast enough category. Right. Yeah. Right. But but specifically, though, why I was curious if you had it, though, was because uh, of the new feature with the widgets. And I remember how much you enjoyed that from uh, Android. And that was the, like, the one thing that a lot of people in, from the Android camp hated about iOS is the fact that it didn't have the the widget capability that you could put anywhere and now it's there with iOS 14. Yeah, w- welcome to the 2010s there Apple. Good job. Oh, we're in 2020. That's right. It's that far. Have you been to pepsistore.com? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> nicely done. <laughs> <laughs> I can't stop laughing at that. <laughs> All right, so let's go ahead and jump into the next bit that we've got here. So we were this is where we are true. No, we weren't. Huh? I was sorry. I don't know what I'm talking about. Go on. Oh yeah. Why? Uh, 
wow, this is actually longer than I thought it was. So yeah, we are actually going to wrap up on the second way here in this, in this section. So, um, the next portion we have was create review and coordination processes to increase our quality of work. So this, this stat blew my mind. I think because it's eight years old and even, even seeing the stat is still kind of like, wow, this is impressive because of GitHub's pull request system. They were able to do 12,602 deployments in 2012. That's how many employees do they have? That's crazy, dude. How many do they have in 2012? Right? Yeah, that's 34, almost 35 a day on average. And that includes weekends and everything. So, uh, was there 180 biz days a year or something like that? Um, that's probably not right. Nah, that's going to be more than that. That's like school days, I think. <laughs> I mean, just oh, watching the math of the chicken work is just see, a treat seven, all to itself. <laughs> seven you divided know? by ten. Carry the uh, one. Seven minus divide five. Divide. Roughly two hundred fifty. Let's yeah, just call it two hundred fifty. Two fifty. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> There's like a hundred days a year. <laughs> but that's Can good. you have just done like you're looking for the number of business days? Couldn't you have just done like fifty times five? Well, it's holidays. That would have given you a with rough, holidays. That that was taking two weeks off. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, somehow I got <laughs> somehow I got fifty per day. Looks <laughs> about right. And yeah, how many employees? Uh, I mean, obviously more than fifty. But uh, 2012, I don't know, man. I I some there's some weeks when I'm lucky to get a single pull request in a week, and usually even then it's crap. So yeah, I mean that's impressive. It's, that's truly impressive, but. The the important part of this that they were trying to bring out is they try to eliminate the need for approvals from people that are not tightly or closely involved with whatever that changes, right? So yeah. don't don't go to some other department for approval. Don't go up the ladder to somebody who's not familiar with the code and the change set. Keep it close to the people that are making the changes. And then that way you're you're sort of guaranteed that there's there's a decent level of confidence in whatever that release will be. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah. And then also with smaller changes, you know, we've talked about all the goods, like uh, smaller changes merging in every day, all sorts of stuff uh, helps with that. And uh, let's just keep everyone in the loop. Uh, yeah. There, there was to- one whole thing about this section. This whole section is having had, because we have already done the Google review uh, like because we already did the episodes on related to the Google engineering practices and how they conduct their uh pull or uh, their code reviews and you know form, put together a pull request and all that. Like <clears throat> it's kind of interesting because there was portions of this chapter, not the whole chapter, but portions of it that they did uh coincidentally talk a lot about Google's processes for it, and it was like, oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yep. <laughs> Been there, remember? Yep, done that. We talked about it. Yep, got the book about it. Yep. Awesome. They they do go in here and they talk, the next section is the dangers of the change approval process. And I actually like this title a lot um, because they like to call out that, hey, bad deployments are usually attributed to a couple of things. Maybe there's not enough approval, process, uh, approval processes in place or there's not enough good testing procedures in place. And the irony behind that is they said, well, they've actually gone and done some studies on that. And the finding is often that 
these command and control environments where where you have to get so many levels of sign off and everything, those usually increase the likelihood of bad deployments for any number of reasons. I totally believe it. It just slows the whole thing down. And, and man, when you know that a change just went out and this is like the only change, there's only been two changes, now things are broke, it's pretty easy to figure out what went wrong. When it was six weeks, it includes six weeks worth of changes and something's broken now, good luck. But, well, you're just like, because you know it's going to be such a hassle to to do it, it it's, it's discouraging. Like right. the three of us, we worked in an environment where uh, long ago – where we used to do deployments, like it was no big thing. We would do three a day, like, you know, according to this, these numbers, that's not even a big deal. But, you know, for us at the time, you know, we thought we were doing pretty good because we had it, you know, automated three deployments in a day. That was no big deal. If we had to fail back, we could, we had processes for that. And then management decided they didn't like that metric and they thought that's too many. You shouldn't be doing that. We need to restrict that. We're going to limit that. And do you remember they started like, uh, like really putting the squeeze on us to where it was like, okay, we're, you're only going to do two deployments a week. And right. these are the days you're going to do them. And we're going to make sure that it was like it, the quality didn't get better because you limited no. how often no. we could deploy. No, it actually got worse, right? Because your ability to respond to it and the change size got bigger. So it was harder to test. Yeah. To see if if the things that you did, because instead of testing two changes, you're now testing 50, right? And, yeah. and th- that was really I, – I don't know that at the time it clicked in our heads that that's what was going on because there was also a bunch of other things, right? Like just the whole approval process and, and even getting set up to deploy ended up becoming another process in and of itself, right? Like you had to go find all the tickets. You had to time all this. You had to create wiki pages. You had to – like it was insane, but looking back on it, I think probably the real problem was that you were releasing too much. It was not easy to isolate what those changes were, so you couldn't go in and validate those quickly. Well, I definitely feel like based off of everything that we've learned in you know over the years since then, you know, with all the various books that we've discussed and and all the practices, like I feel like if we were put in that situation today, we would be able to better articulate to upper management like why that would be a horrible idea you know like back then we knew it was a bad idea idea but we just had trouble like trying to formulate that argument right and to, to to articulate like why it was bad right but i feel like now we're armed with a lot more data that you know we've we've discussed and and dug into the details about it that we would be able to like say like no that's a horrible idea and here's all the reasons why we right. should not do that you remember why they wanted it right like they wanted to know okay tuesday something went out and now we know that there was a problem so now we know that it happened on tuesday so really they wanted to be able to track stuff back to when changes were made but I think now we would make the argument basically that, yeah, we need to improve our telemetry much more too, but we right. don't want to slow things up. Right. Right. It, know that the, that the thing went out, but, but be able to track it and be able to do it multiple times a day. Look for those spikes, look for those, those common things. So, yeah, I mean, what we're talking about here is they were saying these are some of the problems with overly controlling the changes. And Joe Zach said it a second ago is you have longer lead times. That's that's a big problem. Um, and then 
with that, they say this also reduces the strength and immediacy of the deployment process, right? Like I think you said it earlier, if you're releasing something that you worked on a month ago, your confidence in whatever that changes is, is way gone. You don't remember it, right? If you made that change yesterday and you're releasing it today, you're pretty confident in what you did because you were just in it. And, and that's really important. Yeah. And, and if it does happen to go bad, it's fresh on your mind, like what you did and how you did it. You might immediately be able to spot something. Yeah. Yep. But that, um, that definitely bucks old world practices where you have like a long QA cycle, a long planning cycle. I mean, everything. Like you really need to have the whole business aligned towards doing this. And then you can imagine the value. Like imagine 12,000 releases. Uh, imagine having 50 releases a day. Imagine having all your developers releasing changes all, every day. Like that's super powerful. If we do that, you can make changes quickly. Like, you know, we talked about the Intuit thing. Like imagine if they did wait until the off season to do their tests and if something worked, then they weren't going to profit off it until the next year. And then by then, who knows if it's even still relevant. So I do want to call out something, and this is probably really important for people to know, is this what we're talking about works really well in certain environments, right? Like if you're doing websites that you control, that's a really good place where you can do that, right? Because you're controlling it. Um, if you have software that has the ability to update itself by through some sort of, you know, polling or, or push updates or something, that's also good. There are situations, the three of us have worked in enterprise software where you don't have access to that. The software that is getting installed might be on boxes don't even have internet access, right? And so your ability to update that software is minimal at best, right? And so some of these things are really problematic, right? Like you you can't even get the short feedback cycles. You can't get any of that stuff because you don't have access to the environments to where these things are deployed. So I don't think this is a silver bullet. It, it is worth knowing that saying that this doesn't fit every scenario, right? And that's the only reason I wanted to call it out. Well, is this just going, websites though? No, it's not just websites. No, that's what I'm saying. It's not just websites. It's, it, websites are good. Um, anything that can be updated that, that you have access to get those updates quickly, right? Like if you can send out patches and all that, but sometimes you don't, right? Like, um, Think about if if you've got software installed at a government installation like the Department of Defense or something, you're not getting your hands on that stuff. Right. You're not going to know what's happening unless they tell you, right? And and so if you release features to them, you're not going to know if what you did worked or didn't work until you get screamed at, right? And so those situations are really frustrating, and it it's kind of counter to this whole DevOps thing. This DevOps thing implies that you have the ability to update and release these changes consistently. I mean, it, it doesn't even have to be that extreme, though. It could go back to my uh, iOS App Store example, mm, right? Yeah. Like, if you wanted to redeploy out to the App Store, you got to go back through the approval process for that app. And, and depending on... You know that process. That that process can take a couple weeks, right. or at least my information might be a little dated on that. It's been a minute since I've done an iOS app, but uh, you know, I remember that's what it was like. Maybe now yeah, it's, it's painful. Better. I know, I, and I remember too that like for large companies, then they they could buddy up with Apple, then they could get some special, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, whatever they can treatment, reduce the special friction. treatment, right? Yeah. yeah. To, to like help speed that along. But even then, you know, Apple was like, okay, we'll do it this time, but yeah. you know, don't make this a habit. 
Right. Yeah. If you're a video game, like I don't want to be installing multiple updates during a play session. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's, yeah. It's, it's hard. So yeah, if you could do any project, if you have a new project to do, you should try to do it on the web. <laughs> uh, if for no other reason, then you can feed, you can iterate quicker. Yeah, I mean that that is true. But I mean, even talking about the video game thing, turn on Call of Duty. There's an update every time I turn that game on, right? Like every day, it's like downloading updates, and it's probably some sort of patch file or something, right? Yeah. But that ability to quickly turn those things around is amazing, and sometimes you just don't have that control, and that's worth saying. Um, but going back to this thing with you know having too many controls in place. When you do this, you're adding more friction to the deployment process, which is a problem, right? And we already talked about the reasons why. Um, you're multiplying the number of steps in the approval process. That's always a problem. If you're increasing the batch size of the deployment or what's in the deployment, that's a problem. We talked about the testing. Um, your, your deployment lead times, that's another problem. Like all these things add up to to really big problems. They don't seem like a whole lot until they just start stacking on top of each other. And and now you have deployments that are scary and that's why people don't like to do it. And that's where the, the Phoenix project came into play. Right. Oh, spoiler. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. It, it was all about Alan. DevOps. Alan. I think it's too much of a spoiler. <laughs> Whoa. Um, and I think we could agree on this one too. Right. The people closest to the items know the most about them. If you're the developer that did that change, you're going to know the most about it. You're the subject matter expert in that area right now. It makes sense for you to be involved in whatever that process is. But they do say that the people that are further removed from it, so like, I don't know, the director of your department or somebody that's above him or her or whatever, people, as they get further away from it, they don't have the context of that, right? And so maybe they don't even know how they are going to go about approving it, right? And so now you're just adding people to the mix that aren't as close to it, and and they're not going to be as quick to get in there and approve that stuff. They might not even understand what it is you're trying to approve. I mean, let's be honest. Like you know, they might be so far removed from it that they're like you. You could try to describe it. And, and it won't make sense. But there's also that thing too, like as you add more people to that approval process that like the, the communication starts to like get exponential in trying to, trying to uh, involve everybody and make sure everybody understands. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Yeah. And the benefits are dual. It's like one, the person who's approving you probably already knows that this change is happening or knows that the larger feature that you're, you're working towards. And also it keeps them in the loop as to the change too. So it's like, not only are you benefit by getting their experience size, but also you're letting them know about a feature they're close to. Well, it's great. Yeah. It, you know, one of our friends, I think, uh, John, he was on the show back in episode 100. I think I remember him at one point saying communication doesn't scale. Yeah. Right. And, and that's so true. Once you start involving a bunch of people, the meetings start getting set up and people are going to start discussing things that they don't necessarily understand or don't, or don't know all the intricate parts about, and it turns into just a big downhill battle at that or uphill battle at that point, which, which really stinks. And one of the things that they said in here that I really liked is they said, as the distance from the person who actually does the work and is familiar with it increases, so does the likelihood of failure. I think that's pretty accurate. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sold. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, they also said too, though, that organizations that rely on change approvals have worse stability and throughput through their IT systems. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, yeah, you would think it'd be the opposite, but uh, yeah, yeah. Like I mean, even with those change or, orgs making changes slower and getting less work done, they're still less stable. Mm-hmm. And the real, the real thing there, though, and I mean, we've experienced it firsthand, is that the managers that would want to put that process in place, they think they're doing, they they have good good intentions, and they think that it's it's the right thing to do, but that it ends up, according to, uh, you know, the numbers, it ends up actually working against them. Yeah. And the gist of it is they're really just trying to get to the point that peer reviews are probably way more effective than the outside things, right? Involve the people. And this kind of goes back to what, what you talked about a minute ago, Outlaw, with the whole Google review process is there are certain subject matter experts that have to approve a particular thing before that thing can could get merged in, right? Because, you know, Outlaw owns the order system. Joe Zach owns the back office system. If I'm going to make a change to one of those, I got to go to you to get that approval. I got to go to him to get that approval. And that's that's what it boils down to. So that's I think it's really strong stuff. And it'd be hard for an organization to swallow that pill. If they if they've always been in the in the world where, you know, management is the one making those decisions, it's gonna be hard for them to steer away from that. Yeah, totally. Uh, one other thing they mentioned here, which is something we've talked about many times from many different angles, is uh, the more loosely coupled our architecture, the less we have to uh, communicate between teams. And uh, in case you're new to the show or uh, haven't listened to all 142 of the uh, backup episodes, when we talk about loose coupling, we basically uh, mean the ability for our our code to work in uh, separated modules. So they don't have hard dependencies on the code next door. They communicate through some sort of interface, whether it has a little eye or you know, or it's just uh, some other form of contract there, but it just lets us keep stuff uh, more modular. So we can swap things in and out and work on them in isolation and make changes in isolation. And that can happen at the big level, like architecture between say services and can happen at a small kind of code level where you're just kind of keeping changes, uh, keep in separate files or in, in separate modules or classes in order to, to make those classes focus on single responsibility. Uh, that makes them easier to change when only that one thing actually forces them to change. I'm sorry. I, 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 I can't, I can't not comment on it because Mathematician strikes again. Oh, what I do. If you're listening to this episode, there's only 141 back episodes to listen to. (laughs) Well, no, there's the one, there's the one episode that never aired. (laughs) Remember? Remember? I still have it. Don't make me release it. Did it really? Do we have one? No. Yeah. Was it number two? No, he's so full. There was an episode that we recorded, and then like the next day, we we're all like, "Man, that sucked." Oh, we did. That was one of our original <laughs> oh. three, I think. Yeah, yeah, man. yeah. And we were like, "No, we can't do that." Yeah, and so we scrapped it and we did it again. I don't yeah, that was it. painful. Never I, do, I still have it. You don't believe me? I'm release that on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's uploaded Please, to no. TikTok right now. Yeah, we're gonna have to rename him to the Thread of a Chicken. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, all right, so. So back on this one real quick, the one of the things that they say here is this this loose coupling that he was just talking about that's so important is it allows you to make changes in an autonomous way, right? Because like what he said, you're coding to a contract. So you don't have to go talk. I don't have to say, hey, Joe, um, what does this method do or what method do I call to do this? 
you have an API essentially that you're talking to. And as long as that API is there, you write your code, right? And that's, that's super important. Um, they do say though, that this doesn't mean that you, you could just throw away communication, right? There are going to be situations where you have to talk to people. Uh, and, you know, that's important. Just know that you're not going to eliminate that. And they said this is especially true when you have overarching like um, infrastructure type changes, right? Uh, somebody's going to upgrade the database version or somebody wants to do something crazy like that. But I mean, if we've learned anything from clean architecture, though, like you shouldn't have overarching infrastructure. Like what would that mean? Like, like the database example seems like not such a good fit, right? So then it's like, what would overarching mean that could possibly be a problem in that regard then? Well, no, like, a database is probably a good one, right? Like, if, no, if all the applicants. No, because, because, you know, if you, I should be providing, like, you shouldn't have access to my database directly, right? Like, I should have some, I should front that with something and, and you're going through that thing so that when I make changes to my database, you don't know anything about it. But okay, so that's fine and all, but let's say that you're the application team and you rely on an ORM, right? So you've created that abstraction and, and, and you're good with that. But that doesn't mean that if, if the database is updated, that all of a sudden you're not going to have problems, right? Like certain functionality that was, that was being called in, in a proc or something somewhere no. that your ORM wasn't directly doing anything with, but that stuff might break. I, I would right? argue that that's not, uh, if 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 the separation is just the ORM between your application and the database, then you're still tightly coupled. Like, you, you know, if you wanted to truly have a clean architecture, then, uh, you know, you wouldn't know about my app. Your your application wouldn't know about my database. I would have I would front that data to you some way so that you wouldn't. You you shouldn't have your tentacles into it, right? You're you talking about own database. No, no, but you're talking about two steps removed. I'm talking about you're an application team. The infrastructure team, the ops team, wants to upgrade the database server. You need to know about that. Like, well, they're talking about like overarching infrastructure here. Like, if if you're saying like your application cloud. and the database are part of the same thing, then that's that's not overarching. That's part right. of the same application at that point, right? Like, I see what you're saying. Yeah, that's, that's uh, part of the same thing. Saying. Overarching would be like, hey, uh, we are all in the same Kubernetes cluster together, and all of our stuff is deployed in the same namespace together. And now we want to like upgrade the nodes, and but hopefully, you know. Kubernetes is abstracted enough to where you don't care about that. Like your application shouldn't care about that unless maybe you were doing some, uh, um, maybe you had some applications that were making calls out to the Kubernetes API. And then maybe that's why a upgrade to Kubernetes would be an overarching infrastructure okay, change. You. So like maybe matter. an upgrade to your OS that you're running on would be probably another one too. Because the org say so everyone were moving right. to Ubuntu 19. There you go. Yeah. Something like that. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, yeah we I, no I longer support encryption, RSA, two fifty six. Every everywhere is going to twenty forty eight. Yeah, there you go. Those are those are in my opinion that would count as overarching. Yeah, yeah. I like that better. Yeah, and what you're saying is you shouldn't have multiple apps that are talking directly to the database because you're you're breaking something there. But the the alternative is is you have one service layer that fronts the technology rather than multiple services fronting by feature. 
So I don't know. It's it's hard. Yeah. Either way you slice it up, there, there's always problems. But it, your point is well taken, right? You should be abstracting your data storage layer somehow if other people are going to be talking and using that functionality. And the people you find yourself talking with are probably the, the services that you're coupled to. Mm-hmm. That's a good way. kind of converse. You can kind of flip around. It's like if I'm in meetings all the time, it's because my stuff is too coupled. So my <laughs> stuff is too coupled. meetings all the time? <laughs> Crap. <laughs> well, I mean, we did learn that uh, last episode, Joe sends out a lot of meeting invites. That was one takeaway. He doesn't yeah, like to is. be in them, but he likes to yeah. send them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't start the meetings. And, yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that, everybody. <laughs> So I will say one thing about this particular section of of the second way is they repeat themselves a whole lot. So we'll try and blow through some of it. Like So this next section was enable peer reviews of changes. We've sort of already said that. You're closer to the code. You should be the one doing it, right? Small oh. changes are easier. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Now I mean, this one we've even talked about from the Google pro- engineering practices. Yep. Now, this was one thing that I actually liked, though, is, and we've probably said this in a number of different ways in the past, but the size of the change is not linear with the risk of the change, meaning it's not it's not the straight line going up at an angle, right? Like, as the size of the change increases, that risk level goes up tenfold, right? It, it could be like a logarithmic growth yeah, on the risk. Stick. Yeah, it's big. So well, that's super important. Because they also said, too, in in this portion uh, where they said that uh, if you give a a if you give another developer 10 lines of code to peer review, he's going to find 10 mistakes or 10 issues. If you give a developer to uh, to review your code, if you give him 10,000 lines of code, he's going to say it looks good. Exactly. So, so, you know, that goes to your point that like the size of the change is, is not linear in, re- in regards to the risk, because the larger that change is, the more likely it will not, if, especially if this is like ha- habit for your organization, the, or your team rather, uh, the chances of that code actually be, being given a decent review and a thorough review is probably little to none. Right. Right? It'll like it's just going to be rubber stamped. stamped. Yeah. Yeah. I think this one's one of your favorites here. Short lived branches. And we've talked about it a few times about how um, having like long lived feature branches optimized for uh, individual productivity or small team productivity at the expense of uh, larger integrative uh, productivity. And uh, also, if you've got long lived branches, you're delaying these integration periods, which means. Waiting on the the, uh, the errors to show up later, and as we said over and over again, this all the stuff ties together. The sooner you can find the problem, the better. Mm-hmm. For they scarier say, changes, yeah, go ahead. Uh, more than one reviewer for scarier changes, which makes sense. I've seen um, some teams will do things like if it's got this file extension, then it needs to have this kind of person. I I don't love that, but I mean, I I, I kind of get get the intent there is to make sure that enough eyes get on it. Well, I think it was part of the Google engineering practices too, where they talked about like, depending on the language, they might have like one, uh, you know, code reviewer that's just specific to the language, right? Yeah. Not, not even necessarily specific to that area, but to the language. But I think it was, uh, also this portion of the book too, where, uh, all of it's a blur now, so I don't even know. Um, <laughs> where they talked about, um, you know, doing things like 
uh, plus the number of people that you wanted to review. So like in your pull request, you could kind of like indicate how many people you wanted to have review the code and, and, uh, you know, you could see where like for the scarier changes, that would be, uh, you know, a nice, um, practice to have with your team. Yep. I really like this, uh, this next chain, this next section, which ties into the same thing is basically, um, the, the gist is the more manual testing you do, the slower you are to release and the larger your batch size, the slower you are to release. So if you are an organization that is doing a lot of manual testing, whether it's you, the developer, or even a QA team that's got some steps to go through to kind of certify something and you have a large batch size because you have periodic releases, then what we're saying here is that you're you're not going to have very many releases. And what we've kind of said in addition to that, based on the stats and stuff that we're reading in the book, is that the slower your release is, the more error prone. So if you're working at an org that has a lot of manual testing and big batch sizes and infrequent releases, just think about how that's working out for you. If it doesn't seem to be working out for you, then, hey, you should leave a comment on this episode and maybe win the book. (laughs) There's that. And it's working out great for you, then cool. <laughs> I mean, you know, going back to the start of this, right, with GitHub's uh, 12,000, 12,500 uh, deployments that they were doing, or even like, remember Google's, it was like hundreds of thousands that they were doing, right? Like you, you're you not, uh, you know, they're able to do that because they don't have, you know, manual testing of uh, large chunks of code, right? And it's just little bitty things here and there. And they're like, Yep, that little bit works, and the rest of it hasn't changed, so it's safe. Wait, did we ever actually figure out if there's a correlation between more changes and more money? Because really, <laughs> what I want to do is I just want to do something once and then just make the money from then on. So I only I don't want to make a lot of changes. I just want to make that paper. That's what we've been doing wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, I think I'm reading the wrong book here. We need to do the one thing, but just do it a bunch of times. Heck yeah, I'm going to start a lawn business <laughs> landscape. <laughs> Why does it seem like every one of those people drive like $90,000 trucks around? I don't understand. They that. do in Florida, that's for sure. Yeah, I don't get it. Um, all right, so the next ones we have here is they talk about enabling pair programming to improve all changes. And this one, yeah, you know, kind of depends on what side of the fence you land on, on here. But Jeff Atwood actually had a really good quote that they had in here. Pair programming is code reviews on steroids. And that's kind of makes sense because you constantly have somebody looking over your shoulder. So you're catching things before they're ever done wrong, right? Like, Hey, Hey, hey Mike, you, you typed in the wrong thing or Hey, Alan, you, you, that's, that's the wrong method call, whatever. Right. Like that's kind of cool. Well, they also talked about like, uh, you know, different uh, implementations or, you know, uh, of pair programming where like, one would have to like write the code. One developer would write the code. Another developer would write the, uh, the unit test or, you know, one's just constantly looking over your shoulder. Like in the example, the, the way you described it, um, you know, I mean, it, it I, th- I would like to be in an environment doing pair programming because it sounds so like there's so many benefits to it. Right. From everything that we've ever heard. But I, I just, unfortunately I've never been in a pair programming kind of, organization you guys oh, open there's times to it? we've paired on a problem yeah i was sure. gonna say we sure yeah. that but that's as yeah does true. that count 
<laughs> so I'll tell you, I, I, much, I do like pairing when there's something like maybe you're just getting your project started or, you know, whatever. I like that sort of thing and certain kind of touch points. But the idea of spending uh, all day in a in a code review on steroids sounds terrible to me. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard good things about it. I don't know anyone who's who's done it all day and said it was awful. But oh, yeah, you it have. sounds awful. Really? Yeah, you have. Oh, um, Will. Yeah. Will actually. Oh, so he, I thought he liked it. He did like it. Oh, yeah. You said awful. No, he yeah. liked it. Yeah, everyone I know who's actually done it said, yeah, it was good. Uh, they don't seem to rush to go do it again, but this was good. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. I do like what they said here, though, is they said that having that pair programming forces communication that may never have happened, right? Like, Yeah, it, for sure. It, ideas will come out that, that maybe you wouldn't have had. You know, somebody else just, just having two different perspectives on it. I know we've talked about this back in the day, but one of the things they found with programmers is if you get people like diverse backgrounds, you know, people from all over the world, different walks of life, whatever, people solve problems differently because they've experienced life differently. And so it adds to the creativity when it goes in. And that's pretty awesome. That's actually one of the things I like about being a programmer is the creativity. Yeah. Do you, do you keep your ketchup in the refrigerator or not? Right. I don't. Right. But yeah. I mean, it's so much better that way. It really is. I, I, it, I don't like ketchup, so I don't care where you put it. What the? What? <laughs> what? There's I, my I crazy only, comment for the night, and I I'm done. The, the only argument there is Heinz or Hunt's, and that shouldn't even be a question either. That should be like Coca-Cola or Pepsi, really, but we, we won't go there I, right I, now. I don't know. I can't explain it. Um. Yeah, so the last thing they said here is also by doing this pair programming, you reduce those bottlenecks of these code reviews, right? Because a lot of times a code review will sit out there and, and, you know, one of two things happens with that one that has 500 lines of changes. Either that thing sits around for days or it gets rubber stamped immediately, right? And, and both of those things are bad. I would, I would be curious though, like while you, uh, dear listener, are going to the website to enter your chance to win a copy of the book, if you are in a pair programming organization, uh, I'd be curious to know, like, do you constantly rotate like from one project to the next, who you pair up with, or do you just all, you know, are you always paired up with the same person every time? Cause it would seem like if you did that, then you could see like some pros and cons to it, right? Like if you, if you were always paired up with the same person, then eventually it would be kind of like hive mind, you know, this is the way we do it and we're just always going to do it this way and we're not going to like question status quo because it worked for us the last time versus like what you were saying, Alan, like if you were always with somebody new, like from one project to the next, then, uh, you know, you're kind of like learning like, oh, hey, that was a great idea. Yeah. Oh, that's what you guys did on the other team. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, well, here's how we did it. And then you kind of like, you know, mix the peanut butter and the chocolate together and out comes something amazing. <laughs> Uh, or ketchup and mustard. I nah. Mean, you know, well, not ketchup. <laughs> Maybe mayonnaise and mustard. Uh, um, so the next <laughs> section here. Hey, 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 I saw we're, we're, Sorry. That sounds we're, good. We're actually close to the end here. So <clears throat> they said you should also evaluate the effectiveness of the pull request um, via processes. So look at your production outages and see if you can tie them back to a peer review. What did you miss? Um did you have a peer and, review? Did you have a peer review? That's that's one. 
Um, another one that I thought was really good is they talked about the fact that sometimes you'll have a pull request in and people will just put a ticket number and there's no context, right? Like what, what am I supposed to be looking at here? And they say that is as simple as that is, that can really add to the effectiveness of being able to do that peer review. Uh, providing sufficient detail on why the change is being made. I think I'd mentioned that I'd done a pull request into a public project, the, the hoodie project, right? And they actually had a template laid out that was, you have to fill these things in, right? And there was like, you know, six or seven bullet points. And I kind of liked that because it, it made you think about what you were doing and, and you had to tell them why. So it was very clear and concise and consistent for everybody that looked at that. Yeah. You ever look at one of those that's got like 13 things in it and you're like, oh, what if I just delete a couple? I wonder if they'll notice. <laughs> <laughs> I want to type all this. Yeah, it is pretty consistent though on like some of the, the the big projects. I know a lot of the Kubernetes ones, you know, you go look in at their, their pull requests and they're all templatized like that. You, like when you're looking at the, the, well, I guess I'm thinking more of like the, the feature request more than the pull request though. A similar type thing though, right? I mean, yeah, you know, fill in the OS, fill in this, whatever. Yeah. Um, so some of the other things were how the change was made. And if you were aware of any risks that are associated with that particular change, you should probably put that in the pull request as well. And the very last thing that we have here is fearlessly cut bureaucratic processes. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, then just keep it keep it fast, keep it light. Boom, boom, boom. Just like these episodes. Yeah, <laughs> that's the, right. The goal should be to reduce the amount of outside approvals, uh, the amount of Joe's meetings, and the number of sign offs that are needed. That's right. Which really, if you think about it, if you're doing like really small deployments anyways because you know you're just deploying like hey this one little change then it's like how many people you really need for that right nobody cares if all you're doing is you're just like now the logo's on fire like how many people need to approve that right i I think that's the important thing right like if everybody can buy into that mindset then people just won't worry about it because there's not a lot to worry about oh we're just releasing this one fix We've moved, just the, really- we've moved the logo three pixels to the right. We need to go all the way up to the CEO to make sure that this is approved, right? Right. Like, really? Wouldn't happen. But if you have a month's worth of backlog things, yes, that's a different deal, right? So, yeah. All right. Well, uh, we will have links uh, in the resources we like section for this episode. Of course, we're going to have the DevOps handbook and the Phoenix project and the Unicorn project and others. And with that, we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. Yeah, you know, we really need to turn this into plural. It's the tips of the week. I think well, that's you. I got you. I think really <laughs> for you, Alan, this is the tip of last week. Yeah, this is unfortunate. So I don't know if you guys, because I haven't had a chance to listen to the episode yet. Last week, I had a bit of an emergency. My youngest just started yakking all over the place. So I, I had to abort. What a great that. way to put that. <laughs> <laughs> it truly was. It was not pleasant, right? So um, 
and, and a little a little bit about how the sausage is made here. Oh, we're always recording late at night, right? Like it's it's going on eleven p.m. or no, it's after eleven p.m. right now. Last time it was well after that, so you know I'm cleaning that stuff up for an hour. It was it was not fun. So, anyways, all right. So on to my tips of the week. So the your the, dated the one, tips of the week, we should say my dated tips of the week. These are carryovers from last episode. Some of them. So the first one is the Costco credit card. Now. Look, Outlaw makes fun of me because I am a bit of a Costco fanatic, right? A bit. Like, I love Costco. A bit. A bit. I, hey, Joe Zach, I believe bit. you are too, right? Like you like. I like Costco. it. I like it. The meat, the meat is good, and the vegetables, the, the meat, food, veg- the fruit. Oh, and other stuff. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just bought a pressure it. washer from there. See, that's what I'm saying, man. <laughs> the retirement right, policy, yo. Okay, do you ever just find yourself like, do you go to Costco for lunch? I used to. Yes, that's see, that's what I'm saying. There's a difference there because you yeah, can that's hear, the line. That's the line. No man, Joe's like, I like it. You know, they got some good stuff. They got, but but Alan's like, uh, uh-uh, no, I want the credit card. I want to go there for lunch. It's all right. <laughs> so so in fairness, in fairness, the reason why the credit card is such a big deal, and this is, I, I actually him and hawed on this because I hate having credit cards all oh, over the place. Right. That's why I can't believe you're giving a credit card as a tip of the week. But here's is why it's so important to not to get to not use it. <laughs> Don't get no, it. No, you want it, and this is why. So there's a few different things that matter here. Is it, so first off, I'm recommending this because I used to my Amex used to be like where I'd buy TVs or whatever because the Amex used to toss in two extra years of warranty on top of the manufacturer's warranty. So just by buying something with your Amex you basically got three years of coverage on any device you bought. They killed that at the beginning of 2020. Amex is no longer doing that on a vast majority of its cards. Costco does. So just by having the Costco card, if you decide to go buy a TV and it doesn't have to be from Costco, it could be from anywhere or a device. If you buy it, you get two extra years of warranty. That's huge. So that's cool. Is Costco even overseas though? Uh, I don't know. So, all right. So let me get into some of the other reasons why okay. this is okay. important. Okay. Um, it, so when I traveled over to London and I did the speaking at, um, I can't even think of the name. NDC. NDC. Thank you. NDC London. Everything I bought over there, I, I used my card, right? I paid so many international fees for transactions that, I mean, by the time I got back, I probably had a hundred dollars in fees, which isn't a ton, but it's kind of annoying. Your Costco credit card, anywhere in the world you use it, you don't pay international fees. So if you travel, and actually one of our friends that we work with is the one who told me about this. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then on top of it, it's a cash back card. So if you go buy gas anywhere, you get up to 4% cash back on gas purchases. It doesn't have to be at Costco gas stations. It has to be at gas stations. So up to a certain amount of dollars per year, you get that cash back. So the reason I bring up the Costco credit card here is because if you're buying electronics and we're all developers, we buy electronics, we do. Um, it, it's a fantastic rewards card in that you're getting money back in February every year based on your purchases. Now you do have to be a Costco member. So if you aren't, Go find you a Costco and enjoy and revel in the beauty that Costco is. But, but 
it is truly like a fantastic card for all around usage. So like I'm trying to switch almost everything I've got over to it because it's like, Hey, if I can get money back for the stuff I'm spending and I can get extra warranty without having to pay for those square, uh, what is it? Squarespace or whatever, not Squarespace, square trade or whatever these, these plans are that everybody's pushing on you. Every time you buy something, you get it for free. So yeah. All right. So that was that one. That's totally not tech or Cody related, but I had to throw it out there because I was super excited when I found out about all this stuff. I really just think you were looking for another reason to uh, express your love of Costco. I mean, it's so really, that's really all this is about. Look, let me, let me give you a perfect example. So Joe Zach said to me, right? I, I got to tell you this because this, this absolutely just hurts me to my soul. If you go to a local butcher shop here to get, to get prime filet or prime ribeye, it's $25 a pound. At Costco, that same prime filet is $13.99 a pound, dude. It's better there too. And it's it better. is better. It's, it's better. <laughs> it is. So like that alone, I could drop a fortune on meat at that store alone and be happy for the rest of my life, except for my cholesterol. So now I can't, but whatever. <laughs> I, I did love it. <laughs> so maybe so, too much. Maybe that's the problem. I think maybe. I think maybe. But yeah. Do you uh, ever realize uh, that you have a Costco addiction though? That maybe like, maybe there's like an anonymous, a Costco anonymous that you need to go talk. I would totally sit in on those meetings. I have a problem. <laughs> There's no question. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, man. I, I mean, I find myself buying stuff there just because it's there. I'm like, ah, it's, it's got to be good. I mean, Costco's carrying it. I mean, for those um, listening that don't quite still fully grasp the love affair that Alan has with Costco, I mean, he will go to Costco not because he needs to get anything. Like, he'll go to Costco just to pass the time just to see if there's anything that he might want. He's not wrong, man. That's where I get my exercise. I don't know. I don't know what the problem is. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, see so I spent so long on that one. I'll, I'll try and blast through these other ones. So, one that was really cool is Zach Braddy. Um, we know and love him. He's he's uh, you know, he was for a minute the the react reactionary. The reactionary. Um, Wait, he's he not, not doing that. Now, now he's doing tabs and spaces podcasts. Like you know, definitely go check that out. That's fun. Um, but he had a great tip. So we were talking about, uh, you know, Emacs versus Vim and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> We've talked about it several times. He said that his go-to editor now is Emacs because there's an Emacs Doom thing <laughs> for it. And he said it's the best thing ever. So I'll have a link in the show notes for that. So definitely check that out. And then wait, wait, wait. But what is it though? When you say a like Doom a full thing, IDE kind it, of it's, built in. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. think thing is the right way to, to put it. I was looking at it. <laughs> it looks kind of like it's like nerd tree. It looks like it's nerd tree built in, uh, like a VI plus nerd tree, but it's also got like multiple windows that you have open according it to the Visual Studio Code, but in Emacs, also with a really nice color scheme. Yeah. yeah it, okay. There you go. Visual Studio it Code, looks but pretty in Emacs. Cool. I, I was hoping that you were going to say that, uh, it was Emacs and when you, when the boss isn't looking, you could play Doom. And then when it comes <laughs> back, you could be like, Oh, flip the screen. And then you look super smart because you're using Emacs. 
Well, check this out. Here, here's one thing. Doom is comprised of 150 optional modules. So wow. apparently they've tricked this thing out to be, you know, whatever developers dream. And, and he swears by it. So, right. so, uh, this is what happens to Emacs after exhibit comes by. <laughs> uh, all right. So the next one I have, and this one's kind of cool. I don't know that it's absolutely necessary, but it's pretty neat. So I believe Christoph Vig and Raymond Gasper were talking about this in our Slack channel. And there is, we've talked about editor config in the past, which I think is super important. If you want to enforce consistency for developers in terms of how their code formats, tabs or spaces, all that garbage, editor config is a great way to do it because most of the big IDEs out there support it out of the box. So all you have to do is commit your editor config file and everybody will be on the same page, right? Well, if you've never set up an editor config because you didn't want to have to go through the hassle of saying, I want tabs or spaces, my, there is a Microsoft plugin for Visual Studio that will actually inspect your code and create the editor config based off your code. So that's kind of cool, right? Like if you've always had tabs in there, then my guess is it's going to say, hey, prefer tabs and this is how everything's going to happen. So it will generate your editor config for you. Really cool stuff. And then... The very last thing, this has been driving me crazy. So I use Oh My ZSH in Mac for work. And I don't know if it's that that started doing this or something else. But you know how like typically you'll type in some sort of command, like let's say um, uh, cube cuddle, right? And you hit enter and it'll give you a list of all the stuff that's supposed to happen. Like, right, all the all the commands, you can do all the arguments. For whatever reason, on mine, it does it in a less way, you know, like where it'll give you a page of it and you can hit the space bar and it'll go to the next page and you hit the space bar, go to the next page, whatever, right? So that's all kind of nice because it didn't blow all by me. But what drove me crazy is when I'd hit the Q button to exit out of it, all the command information was gone. And I was like, well, doggone it. Now I got to type it again because I can't remember what it was. I need to see it on the screen, right? So I'd find myself going back and forth five and six times like, oh my God, like what was this? So there is a trick that I found out about. So if there is something in your shell that is sort of kind of calling less behind the scenes, which is what this was really doing, you can, and I've got a stack overflow to it, man. I actually need to upvote this guy uh, or gal, whoever it was. Um, there is a way you can basically export your less command. So you export less equal, and then in quotes, do dash X, capital X, lowercase R, and then close quotes and hit enter. And what will happen is it'll still use less when you go to do your command. But when you hit Q to exit, it'll leave whatever was on the screen right there so you can see it. So that, I swear to you, as small of a change as that is, that made me five times more efficient in just everyday things. Okay. I got to ask you a question. Uh-huh. I, this is probably going to irritate me because you're probably going to tell me something so stupid simple <laughs> that I'm going to be like. <laughs> Wait for it. Okay. Because I got to know. I mean, like the enthusiasm in your voice behind this less trick that you've got here. Yeah. Do you like this better or Costco? Ooh. 
Costco. <laughs> <laughs> the game would be good at math to know that was going to happen. <laughs> the math but chicken got it, man. Come on. Uh, hey, hey, look. The chances are you could stack up most things in this world against my love for Costco, and it's probably going to win the vast majority of the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, I've been waiting for them to get a good mountain bike. I'm just saying, you know, yeah, you <laughs> come on, Costco, get one in stock. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, my turn. And uh, I've got two tips this time. So one is for uh, everybody and the other is for Outlaw. So <laughs> I'm very excited about this. So first, I get my very uh, own. Tell, <laughs> uh, our friends uh, over from, we had some friends on the uh, the Rollback podcast uh, a couple years ago. They ended up kind of splitting up and doing different things. And now two of them are on a new podcast called Head in the Clouds, which is a, I would say, uh, a cloud development focused podcast, but it's from, uh, and I remember saying this about the, the rollback last time. It's not from, uh, it's more from, uh, geez, I don't even know how to say it. Like, a uh, DevOps is maybe how you would say it, or like a network admin or a sysadmin or uh, just a different perspective from um, from what I'm used to. So the, the people on the podcast uh, come from backgrounds like uh, in security or network engineering, or they just basically came from a different path to get to kind of the same place as a lot of things that we're talking about with uh, DevOps. And so it's a really good podcast and it's really refreshing for me because they're talking about the things I know and am really trying to learn a lot about right now, but it just comes from a totally different way of thinking about things. So it's been really cool and really refreshing. And it's a newer podcast that just came out. Uh, I think we've got like maybe 10 episodes or so. Uh, and so you got to go check it out and we'll have a link in the show notes. Cool. Now, number two. Did you know that GitHub had a CLI? I did not. Okay. So it just hit uh, version 1.0. And I my initial thought was uh, that's the dumbest thing ever because, like, I, I mean, Git is a CLI. Like, what the heck? Why would I ever need uh, GitHub? So let me tell you what I've just been doing uh, while we've uh, been recording the podcast. Uh, <laughs> you can create repositories from the command line with this tool. Uh, you can create issues, list issues, assign issues. Uh, you can um, PR, create pull requests. You can review pull requests, which will automatically check out the branch that's associated with that pull request and go through those changes, looking at diffs, and then uh, approving the pull request and merging the pull request all from the command line. And, of course, it works with all the Git stuff. So if you're using GitHub or GitHub Enterprise, and by the way, it prompts you for which one you're using when you log in, uh, which is really nice, and we do a GH auth, you can do everything you need to do to interact with GitHub through command line. So you never have to go to the website. Oh, this That's is pretty slick. for me. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say everything. I'm sure there's lots of GitHub actions, lots of fancy stuff, settings that you can't do. But yeah, it's actually super easy, and it's um, it kind of reminds me of... Uh, I guess that's kind of how a lot of modern CLIs are doing now where it's like basically GH and then it'll be like noun. So like issue and then verb. So GH issue list, GH issue create. So after like two seconds, I was able to do everything I was trying to do without even looking at the help. Where's the, uh, do I just app get install GH? Uh, if you're on Linux, I suppose. So, uh, it's also brew. Uh, I use scoop for windows. Uh, scoop install gh all right that yep. is my tip thank you 
Yeah, I think you're going to love that. Uh-huh. Just to be able to do everything from command line. Ooh, they got in on chocolatey um, too. Choco install. That's right. Uh, it, for me, like, it's not, like, I don't hugely care about it, but it has been annoying. Like, whenever I create a new repo the first time, I'll, I'll like, I'll make some new code. Like, okay, cool, I want to save it. So I'll do git init. Okay, now I got to go to GitHub. And I got to create a repository. And then I got to go ruin the thing to set the origin. Like, no, no. No, I mean, you're again. burying the lead here. The pull request, it's all about like not right. having to go to the website so you could do the pull request. Well, That's in GitHub, I do matters. less pull requests than I do more creating repositories and then abandoning them. <laughs> well, okay, fine. Your code goes to die. But, but okay, let's pretend we weren't talking about your yeah. use of GitHub, though. Like, Individual. Yeah, if you're an like, organization, it's huge. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Okay, thank you. That you're one... Welcome. I am very happy. And that that just was announced today. Yeah. But Bing, look like, who's on top of things. Yeah. Yeah, man. Joe Zach is. <laughs> <laughs> I got some good tips of the week this time. That or Costco? Definitely oh. this. GitHub CLI. <laughs> no, come on, man. What about you, Joe? <laughs> oh, man. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> come on, Jeff. Uh, it's Costco. I mean, I just got a pressure washer. <laughs> It's Costco. So you don't nah. need to go back to Costco anytime soon. So it's GitHub CLI. Have you or seen the their way. salmon? You cannot get better salmon. <laughs> Not the sockeye. Don't get the sockeye. But the regular no, the whatever Atlantic, salmon. Yeah, the Atlantic salmon. Yeah. yeah. Don't get the sockeye. Don't get the sockeye from anywhere. It's got bones. All right. I can't take you serious right now. <laughs> Clearly the right answer is the GitHub CLI, sir. Uh, okay. Well, then it's time, time for my tip. Or unless were you done? Because you did say you had more than one. Was it just? Like yeah, are you even gonna okay. bother? I mean, <laughs> I should have gone last. I'm sorry. I don't know how I follow that up. I mean, that is that is a big one for sure, for sure. Uh, so I will share this one, which is definitely not from today. This is uh, you know a couple years old. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you're not using WSL two yet, if you're still uh, forced to use the other one then uh and you find yourself doing a lot of uh, kubernetes specifically like helm with your kubernetes then you might be inclined to want to um install wsl and install ubuntu and uh set that up to where you can use your docker and kubernetes and helm all within ubuntu and everything work fine because if you've ever noticed it's kind of annoying that some of the commands are there's there some of the commands are more significantly faster in the POSIX environment than they are in windows. I don't know why that is, but it's observable. You can see it. And some of the commands you'll be like, I don't care. I really don't care. Like, okay, fine. It saved me a whole second. But then some of them, like some of the helm commands would be like, you know, a six second difference. You know, and it's like, you're like, outlaw, it's six seconds. But, but if you're doing scaffold, for example, and you're scaffolding up an environment, that's nothing but Helm commands. And, you know, you could see it take, uh, you know, a longer period of time to do all the Docker builds, then all the Helm commands, uh, you know, necessary to get that environment up and going. So it can matter. So where am I going with all this is there's an article on Medium that talks about how to configure your uh, your WSL environment so that you can bind the 
um, Kubernetes and Docker instance inside of Ubuntu to that of Windows so that it's the same, it's sharing the same thing, the same instance. And no matter where you run the commands, you're going to have the same stuff available to you. But, uh, you can get all the benefit, the, the speed benefit of running it through Ubuntu instead. So I'll have a, uh, link to that article. And then I kind of wanted to like mention this one again. We mentioned this one back in episode 107, the kubectl cheat sheet. And I, and I couldn't remember, um, if at the time the reason why we mentioned, I think, I think we were more mentioning it, if I remember correctly, that just our, our love affair for cheat sheets, <laughs> you know, to be able to find stuff. But what I really wanted to like point out that I don't think we caught out last time was, at the top of the cheat sheet are uh, a couple lines for you to, to use to where you can get the bash uh, completion of not the kubectl letters itself, but of the other things. So like if you typed in kubectl DE and then you hit tab, it would finish out describe or you know, more if you did like kubectl pod and then you started to type in the pod name and then you hit tab and it finishes out the pod name for you, right? Uh, I don't know that we really called that portion to attention last time, so I wanted to highlight that here. And that's a game changer. Not having to type in that hash at the end of a pod name. Golly. Yeah. It's awful. Yeah, it's awful. Or as I would do, uh, kubectl get pods... Okay, copy paste, kube cut all describe <laughs> pod, paste. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Uh total total game changer, like Alan said. Yeah, you should you should take advantage of that. Uh so with that, uh, I think we finished up the second way. Finally. Woo-hoo. We finished up the second way. Uh and yeah, with that, you know, subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher More, using your favorite podcast app. Uh as Alan mentioned earlier, uh, we would love to hear uh, any of your feedback and, and read your reviews. We do greatly appreciate those and, and really enjoy reading them. They put a smile on our face. You can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. Oh, and I see uh, while you're at codingblocks.website.whatever, uh, check out our show notes and examples and the discussion and the other stuff that's there. Okay, and uh, wait, wait, something just happened there. Uh, yeah, while you're up there, I think Joe didn't want to have to talk anymore, so Joe's yeah. like, "Here, let me make yeah. this He's all sleep over there on the desk." Um, yeah. Well, if, ever if since you, you told him that you could just bell midway through, he's like, "Forget <laughs> it, I'm done, I'm out." Um, yeah, if you have any questions, uh, comments, or whatever, you can send those to our Slack channel. Definitely go over to codingblocks.net/slash/slack and get on there and interact. Good stuff. And this is you, Joe. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks or head over to CodingBlocks.net where you can find all the social links at the top of the page. And uh, you can also, uh, somewhere buried, hidden on this website is a link to the spreadsheet where gremlins have gotten in and are changing the the names on who has to say what. It's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know who it is. That's weird. Uh, Must be on the website. Totally weird.